Welcome into TYT's The Conversation. I'm your host, Adrian Lawrence. And today we have for you the Executive Director of the Advanced Consortium on Cooperation and a Columbia University professor on psychology and education who has a new book coming out that's titled The Way Out, How to Overcome Toxic Polarization. Welcome in, Peter Coleman. Thank you so much for having me. Now, Peter, this is huge because right now there seems to be so much division in our society. What is The Way Out about? So you're right, we are at record high levels, according to some estimates of political polarization in Washington and on Main Street. And it's part of a long 50 year pattern. So what I try to do in the book is quickly explain how we got so stuck for so long and then talk about the science. I study societies like ours that have been stuck in patterns like this. And I try to share with the reader that what the science tells us about the conditions that help us change and change course. And it's so important that we change course because, hey, we were in the Trump administration for four years. And now we have the Biden administration. It is day and night. But it seems like there are a lot of really kind of ongoing issues that continue to permeate. So I guess without giving away too much, what is it that the way out kind of provides in terms of guidance? Well, the reason I wrote the book is because it's something that I've studied for decades. I've studied these societies that are able to come out of really even civil wars, but highly contentious periods or phases. And so we, what we're trying to do is offer specifically what people can do and bring that down to your life, your world. So one of the premises of our book and of our research is that because when we are so polarized, things start to seem very simple. It seems like they're insane, we're victims of, our, of their insanity, it's simple. There are clear truths here. And what starts to ha- happen again is that we oversimplify so much, the issues, the other, and even our sense of ourselves. So what one of the premises of the book is that we need to complicate our lives that we need to start to listen to some folks who we disagree with politically. Not everybody, not the extremes, but you need to find people in your life that you feel are you know, smart and reasonable, even though you disagree and stay in conversation with them so that you begin to challenge some of your basic assumptions and habits because we are not only you know, emotionally moving apart and feeling a sense of contempt for the other, which can of course lead to incidents like January 6th. But we're physically moving away from each other within cities into different neighborhoods, uh, rural urban splits, and virtually on the internet, we're sort of being sorted into different tribes. So we are losing contact with the other side. And that is a recipe for, for violence. So my recommendation is that you think about how can you complicate your life Travel to places where you meet different kinds of people, um, watch news, go to internet sources that perhaps will challenge you, even though you, may, you certainly you don't know need to go to everything that's out there, but go to some things that challenge your basic thinking. Um, complicate your life is the message. 
Yes, and it sounds like it's something that a lot of people could use. And some of the things you just said really kind of made me think in terms of who is the target audience here? Because we know January 6th, primarily it was white people, conservatives, and also the reality when you say that people are going and living in more segregated lives. Generally, it's been white people who live in constantly segregated lives. So is that kind of the aim for this book in terms of who it's directed toward and who could use this the most? Yeah, so one of the things, again, we've learned from studying these societies that change is that one condition you, you need is that you need enough moderates in the middle that are fed up with the nonsense and the vitriol and the hate and entertainmentization of the news. Um, and fortunately, we are. There's a group called More in Common that studies the US, and they estimate something like 86% of middle moderate Americans are just fed up with the craziness of Washington and the media and the internet and want to engage politically in a different way and kind of gain, you know, uh, take back our democracy. That's who the book is written for. It's for those people that are fed up and looking for other ways to move us forward. And I understand that you're a renowned expert when it comes to constructive conflict resolution and sustainable peace. And so I was wondering, what I know you talked about really what encouraged you to write this book, but I guess what part of your expertise did you feel like was lacking when you looked every day in all of these issues that seem to be coming up in our society? Well, so if you look at what how people talk about political polarization, they oftentimes say, well, it's because you know red Americans, blue Americans have different moral values, or because they have you know different levels of sensitivity of threat in their brains, or because of gerrymandering or because of the internet or news or you know, there, there's always the answer as to why we're so divided. What I find is that's not accurate, that all of those things matter. But what matters more is how they start to kind of feed each other in complicated ways and create these patterns, these like riptides in our community that pull us apart and split us apart. In other words, the polarization in our culture today is bigger than any one of us. So it's not something that you and I can just simply sit down and talk about. We need to think about it in a different way. And we need to find groups and individuals in our communities that can help us have those conversations because they're very difficult conversations and they take a lot of time. And ideally they take facilitation between people that know how to do that. And so when you talk about, um, you know, these polarizing mindsets and the things that are changing how we interact with one another. How much of a role does the push for the power structures and reinforcing those? And by the main power structures, I mean gender, race, class. How much does that play a role? It plays a major role. I mean, one of the one of the major structures that plays, I think, a considerable role is capitalism and the business model of entertainmentization of media and trying to gain our attention through taking very complex issues and saying, there's two sides to this issue, let's get the most extreme voices and have them at each other. And we think that's conversation and we think that's a way to teach to teach Americans about these issues. And it does the opposite, it just moves us apart. So the business model behind a lot of news media, behind a lot of social media um, are part of the problem. But you're absolutely right, um, there are antagonists that weaponize white supremacy they and race. They weaponize gender uh, dynamics and gender discrimination. They, they know how to play 
into crowds in order to divide them. Um, and they do that very effectively. So those factors, which are part of the American context, um, make us ripe for division, make us ripe to be pulled apart. Yeah, I absolutely agree with you. And watching it uh, really be exploited, uh, it's been difficult to watch, especially when people are relinquishing themselves of uh, actual facts and playing into fear and fear mongering. And so uh, if people are looking for essentially the way out, what is maybe a tip you can give them in terms of the benefit that your book will provide to their personal lives? So what I, the book ends up in a set of what I call new rules. So that if you find yourself wanting to have a conversation with you know, your brother-in-law or someone that you work with who you know you have strong political differences with, um, it gives you some ideas, some nudges that you can do to try to engage in that way. And so one of them is I encourage you to move. I encourage you not to sit down at a table across from each other and try to have a conversation. I encourage you to say, let's go for a walk. Let's go for a walk outside. Because one of the things neuroscience has taught us is that when people are outside physically moving, you know, side by side, moving together, they tend to synchronize together. Their, their neurons start to synchronize and they start to feel more compassionate and understanding and flexible and cooperative. And so even physical movement can help you get to a place where you can start to have conversations over difficult issues on which you disagree without them getting out of control. So that's just one, one insight from the book that I would recommend. Yes, and that is a very powerful one, especially with us coming out of this pandemic, where many of us were locked up inside. Uh, I'm sure it did not help for when it came to conflict resolution at all. Uh, now, I know um, you're probably very excited to get your book out there. And so um, just for anyone who's really looking to dive in, what resource other than the way out would you provide them? Is there any kind of maybe a precursor that they should prep themselves on? Or is the way out the great starting point and you can just go from there? Yeah, so there is a website for the book. Actually, the book just came out, so it, it is out. There it is. <laughs> um, and there is a website for the book. It's thewayoutofpolarization.com. And that gives you a little context to why I wrote the book. And there's exercises and ideas and a lot of media in there. So that's a good way to get a taste of the book. Um, but I try to write this book for human beings that are feeling sick and tired of the situation, feeling trapped, and really want to have some ideas about how to move out of that. So it's written for everybody. That is awesome. And that is something we very, very much need right now, as there is so much division right now and trying to find a way to get a way out is so incredibly important. So thank you so much for joining us, Peter. And anyone who's out there, please check out The Way Out, How to Overcome Toxic Polarization. I'm guessing it's available everywhere books can buy, is that correct? It is, you're right. Yes, wonderful. So head over to your local virtual bookstore and pick up a copy. Thanks so much for joining us, Peter. Thank you for having me. And now we welcome in someone you may recognize. He is the author of The Storm is Upon Us, How QAnon Became a Movement, Cult, and Conspiracy Theory of Everything. Mike Rothschild, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. Now, Mike, congrats, you're one week out from your book launch. And I know people are excited to get their hands on it. Can you tell them what it's about? Sure. 
This book is a history of the QAnon conspiracy theory, not just uh, the earliest drops made on 4chan, but the conspiracy theories and scams and tropes that went into making it. One of the things I wanted to do was really strip away the component parts of QAnon and demystify it and make it look less new and less like something that nobody had ever seen before and really get down to what makes it tick and why people believe it what people get out of it and how to get people out of it. Wow, and I know a lot of people have sunken into it. They actually legitimately believe that certain celebrities are pedophiles and that there is this ring going on. What is it that makes people so willing to just fall into this unproven kind of these conspiracy theories? Sure, QAnon is very good at providing uh, easy answers to complicated questions and to provide order in what looks like a very chaotic and random world. What really sets QAnon apart from a lot of other conspiracy theories is that it has a participatory element. It brings you into the equation. You know, Most conspiracy theories are just about what a group of wealthy string pullers are doing to you. And there's nothing you can do, you can't fight back. It's, you, know, you just have it happen to you. With QAnon, you are on the front lines. You are a digital soldier, to use the phrase that Michael Flynn used in 2016. So you can can make memes, you can make videos, you can decode cue drops, you can wake your friends up to what's really going on. And in that respect, it it provides a, a way to fight back. It's a participant, it's a participatory community. And, and that's really what makes it tick. Gosh, so essentially because people can get involved, they're more likely to get involved and to be entranced by this. That's a very scary thing. And so when it comes to Kind of putting an end to these conspiracy theories. Is there any suggestions for how to stop it? Well, unfortunately, conspiracy theory beliefs are really baked into the way that we see the world. You know, in a, from an evolutionary standpoint, if we see a, a tree rustling, our brains tell us that it has to be danger, and we run away. And we all still have that today. Most people believe in something that is weird or unevidenced, or or that they themselves advocate for and nobody else agrees with. That's just the way we are. And in most cases, it's really not harmful. But obviously, in the case of QAnon, it is extremely harmful, extremely violent and destructive. So I think that the best that we can do, and I talk about this quite a bit in the book, is maybe not so much deal with QAnon, but look for the next iteration. What's gonna be the next conspiracy theory or mass movement that takes some of the parts of QAnon and repurposes it for something brand new? Oh, yikes, that's scary to think about that there's gonna be a next wave because I think we generally don't see them coming as much as they do. But I guess, do you think that this is something that maybe the federal government needs to invest resources in and thwarting these kind of conspiracy theories before they start? Well, I definitely think the government needs to invest resources in dealing with these kinds of movements. You know, we saw the FBI put out a memo in the summer of 2019 talking about how violent QAnon was and the potential for mayhem from certain believers. But by then, there'd already been a slew of crimes. There'd been multiple murders, there'd been domestic terrorism incidents. So I think what we really need to do is not so much look for the government because, you know, there's there's this um, misconception that things that happen online are, are not important. That, you know, this just crazy, kooky internet stuff. We don't need to worry about that. That's not real. QAnon is very real, and the damage it's done is very real. So I think it's really up to us 
to see it happening in the lives of the people that we care about. You know, if you have someone who's really prone to conspiracy theories, you really need to check in on that person and see kind of what they're looking at, where they're getting their news from, how they're handling everything. That's really the best way to forestall these things. I don't I don't think we can really rely on anybody else to do it but us. Yes, and it seems to be something that we definitely need to be better equipped on understanding this. And so if there is the potential to maybe get to people early, would you suggest that there's some kind of educational reform? Oh, sure, I think critical thinking has to be taught in our schools from the very beginning. And especially with the internet, we have to teach really young kids how to navigate information spaces, You know how to tell what's real from what's fake, what's harmful from what's true. I think we all have to do that as, as parents, as community members. It really has to be a part of our daily life, both for ourselves, our own digital hygiene, and for people who are younger than us. And I also think people who are older than us. This conspiracy movement has really caught on with baby boomers. There's a, a huge older element that really is into QAnon and was really into it from the very beginning. And I talk about in the book how a couple of the early Q evangelists went on info wars in December 2017, really just after this thing started, and made an appeal for retired Americans with military experience to join them in their fight. And they, they got a huge response to that. It, it was very terrifying. Yikes, do these people just need something to do? Um, <laughs> you know, well, they're kind of rolling in all of their money, and I'd almost say our money. Uh, so why can't they just sit there as opposed to you know dragging down society? But I will stop there. Um, so when it comes to the storm is upon us, if there's a little nugget that you wouldn't mind sharing that you find to be interesting that you know readers would enjoy, I'd love to hear it. Sure, so one of the things I really wanted to do was to understand the mentality behind the crimes that have been committed by QAnon believers. You know, we've heard about the, the Gambino family mob boss who was shot dead, the, the guy in Seattle who ran his brother through with a sword because he thought he was a lizard person. One of the things I wanted to do is really dig in and understand that. And something that I found in, in researching and sort of putting all of this together is that the people who committed these crimes weren't motivated by hate, they weren't motivated by you know white supremacy or anti-Semitism so much as they were in the mistaken belief that they were in danger, the country was in danger, or children were in danger. Now, it's important to point out that a couple of them have been found incompetent to stand trial. But a lot of the other ones haven't been. And we have to understand that QAnon believers see themselves as soldiers in a war on behalf of patriotism and what's good and right. Now, obviously they're wrong and they're violent and dangerous, but these people are motivated by much more than just the sort of random hate online. They really think they're striking a blow against the forces that are keeping America down. And that's much more difficult to deal with, at least in my opinion. Yeah, because um, like you say, if it's individuals who seem to be, um, you know, pretty okay in the normal boat, and then all of a sudden they go do something this extreme and they truly adopt these beliefs, uh, it seems to be rather scary. Uh, now, when it comes to the potential next threat that should come uh, or that could come, uh, do you think that there's a recipe for being able to detect it? 
I think what we need to do is is really get into these social media spaces where they hang out. And, and I, I don't advocate people just going there by themselves, but there's a great network of disinformation researchers and journalists who monitor some of these places like Telegram and Gab and, and uh, you know video sites like BitChute. And if you start to see people worrying about things, I think that's a time where you can concern yourself with it. You know, don't go searching yourself. These places are awful and, and you know, I don't recommend anybody go there. But the, the one thing that they're really coalescing around and that I really urge people to keep an eye on is the stolen election narrative. This all started way before the election. You had certainly Trump's inner circle, but also QAnon who was put posting dozens and dozens of drops every day seemingly about how there was no way Joe Biden could win the election. And if Joe Biden won, it means the election was stolen. Well, Joe Biden won. And they now think the election was stolen. And they are putting their hopes into this increasingly bizarre series of events that needs to happen. You know, it started with the obviously January 6th, then this March 4th thing, and now the recount in Maricopa County, which they really see as the, the key to toppling all of the dominoes that will invalidate all of these states and, and just magically put Donald Trump back in office. Obviously, we know that is not going to happen. That is not in the realm of reality as it is currently constructed. But these people don't live in that reality. And the fear I have is that at some point it is going to be obvious that Trump is not going to come back into office. And that's when the danger really starts of people taking matters into their own hands and having a repeat of January 6th or something even worse. That's that's scary, the thought that there could be something worse. I just don't understand why these people can't focus on like reasonably sound conspiracy theories yeah. like Jeffrey Epstein. Not yeah. necessarily just um, suddenly dying kind of thought. It's like at least go for the legit. Help me out here, mm-hmm. um, gosh. But you know, at least we're going to have something like the storm is upon us to provide somewhat of a guide, so people can dig a little deeper into this mindset. And I'm extremely interested in it. And so, if people are looking for more insight in terms of your book and also maybe where you are going in terms of having a book tour, where can they find information? Sure, uh, I tweet pretty relentlessly. I'm on Twitter at RothschildMD, it's just my initials. I'm not a doctor or anything like that. Uh, You can pick up the book anywhere books are sold, uh, your local independent bookstore, bookshop, you can order from the publisher, obviously Amazon if you wanna do that. And watch out for some new projects I'm working on and really, Dig into that community of disinformation researchers because there's people doing really good work out there, and and you can really you know educate yourself in in a positive and truthful way to what's going on. Yes, and it's so incredibly important not to discount things simply because they're happening on the internet and thinking that oh it's yep. just someone sitting in their basement. Yep. That is not necessarily the case anymore. Thank you so much for joining us. Please remember, check out the book, The Storm is Upon Us, How QAnon Became a Movement, Cult, and Conspiracy Theory of Everything. Mike Rothschild, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me.